And again, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use that handout for a lot of the verses we'll be talking through. Um, but uh, grab a Bible if you'd like from a seat pocket somewhere near you. First Samuel, looking at the Old Testament. We hear the chorus of children there. That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. Right. First Samuel chapter 4. We're not going to read our entire text this morning just because that would take us the entirety of our time together. But I, wanted, I was trying to figure out how to break this story up into smaller sections, and it just made more sense to my brain to handle this all at once. Okay, so 1 Samuel 4 to 6. Uh, we're going to look at what I think is at the core of, again, this whole series has been contrasting conviction versus compromise, conviction versus compromise. We've looked at the home that Samuel was brought up in with Elkanah and Hannah and uh, what a home of conviction looks like. We contrasted that in chapter 2 with Eli's household, with Hophni and Phinehas, and the disaster that they became of, of compromise and wickedness and sinfulness. Uh, then last week, for those of us that made it to the early service, right, we talked about the call of Samuel, where Samuel is available, ready to hear from the Lord, and willing to respond in faith and trust uh, to the life of conviction God was calling him to. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to be introduced uh, to our first battle scene that's going to take place in the book of 1 Samuel. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament, we think of the, all of the different nations. You have the Philistines that we'll look at this morning, and the Amalekites, all these, all these different kind of countries, and they seem so distant and foreign. But I want to encourage you this morning to try and place yourself in the story, okay? Read the Bible as if it is what it is. It was a history book written for us. This is factually proven people that lived in real space and real time, and the parallels between the nation of Israel and our nation, I think, have been plenteous already. They'll continue this morning. Uh, compromise kind of defines the world in which we live. And uh, for those of us who are a little bit older, I don't place myself in that category, but I found some gray in the beard this morning as I was getting ready. So uh, that's always discouraging. Uh, but every generation as we get older, we see compromise in the one coming behind us. This is just kind of the process of human nature, okay? If you're a grandparent in the room, you are very concerned about the world in which your kids will, grandkids will be raised. But I want to tell you something. Your grandparents were very concerned about the world in which you were going to be raised, right? For those of you guys who were ch children of the 60s, right? Everyone was very concerned about what was going on in the world during that time of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll generation, right? That this is where the world is going to be heading. Everyone is concerned. But I think we have to be intellectually honest enough to say that Things have sped up the past decade or two decades, okay? Uh, the changes that took place for the first couple thousand years seems like we've just sped up the past 20. Conversations are happening in our homes right now. If you've got teenagers, you're having conversations in your home right now that your grandparents would have never thought you would have to have, right? Trying to, trying to define things that no one ever thought needed a definition up until the past 15 or 20 years. You know, things like, well, what is a marriage, and what is gender, what, these kind of conversations. And these are cultural conversations, but they're also spiritual conversations. These are results of national cultural compromise, but they're also results of a personal decision to compromise. So what we're going to look at this morning is what I think is the root problem of all of this. Some of you are like, oh, it's the, you know, it's what's going on on the TV. It's, it's the internet, right? It's the... Uh, some, I was talking to a guy last week, and he said, it's, it's that World Wide Web. And I said, as soon as you say World Wide Web, you don't know what you're talking about, sir. Like, w, we don't even have to use WWWs anymore, right? Like, um, but we, the root of all this problem, I don't think, is in the internet. The root of all this problem, I don't think, is on the TV set. The root of all this problem, I don't think, is on the news network of the opposite political party. I don't think that's where the problem is. 
I think the core of compromise, we'll see this morning, at its core, it is a misunderstanding or a disrespecting of the character of God. More and more people in our world, in our culture, question whether or not this book that we hold in our laps this morning has anything to offer them in their real lives. In the 21st century, people wonder, well, what, what is this kind of truth that we would say is objective, that is removed from my feelings or opinions? We live in a world that we've elevated those things, my feelings, my opinions, to the level of objective truth. We live in a day that kind of is described really well in the book of Judges as a day in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the kind of the, the theme verse for the book of Judges, and that's the time in which Samuel is living and ministering. We're living in a day where I think this is very, very applicable to us. Israel, during this time, is a poster child for national spiritual compromise. And again, we'll cover three chapters this morning. Don't be too afraid. One story takes the greater part of these three chapters. And here's what I want you to see as we go through this. There's going to be some craziness, okay? There's going to be arcs and rats and tumors and, and battles and deaths and fat people and skinny people. Like, there's going to be a lot here, Okay. Um, but as we go through it, this is not a story just about history. This is a story about God and what it looks like when a group of people choose to compromise their view of him. These chapters tell the story of how the nation of Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant that uh, all these years later, Mr. Indiana Jones still has not quite been able to figure out, right? The Ark of the Covenant, how that Ark went into exile and how God brought it back. Now, before we get in too far into it, you've got to understand the importance of the Ark of the Covenant, Okay. Uh, it's a lot more than a historical artifact. It's much more than the, you know, the, the setting of a dramatic Harrison Ford movie, right? The Ark of the Covenant was very, very important for the nation of Israel. It was very, very important to God. It actually sat in the holiest place in the tabernacle. It had these cherubims that would be over it, gold plated everywhere. The, the, the bud that Aaron held was in there, or the, the stick that Aaron held was in there. The Ten Commandments would be held, and this was in their mind, from, from God, this was the, the presence of God was in this Ark of the Covenant. This was a big deal to them, this Ark of the Covenant. And then they lost it. The, think about that. The, the physical form of the presence of Almighty God, and they lost it. I think this story focuses on the glory of God. We're going to see a word, if you're a Hebrew nerd, the word kavod is listed about 14 times in these three chapters. That word can mean glory, weightiness. It can also mean physical weight, right? Kavod, heaviness. Ultimately, what I hope we see this morning is the weightiness of the glory of God, the weightiness of the, the holiness of God. Over and over again, I think we're going to see how important it is for us to understand how awesome God is. So this morning, let's look together at the amazing, powerful, weighty glory of the presence of God and what that glory demands from us, okay? Three conditions, three conditions about the character of God that I think this morning will strengthen our resolve, it'll strengthen our backbone and our conviction and help us to resist the compromise that's taking around us, but also resist the compromise that's taking place within us, okay? First truth, first truth, God is king, we serve him. God is king, we serve him. If I could add a little piece to that, God is king, we serve him, he doesn't serve us. We serve him, he doesn't serve us. Get your Bibles there, let's go First Samuel chapter 4, we'll start together, verse number 1. Verse number 1, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle, and they pitched besides Ebenezer, and that's not Scrooge, that's a place, okay? And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. 
And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined in battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Good question. Why have we lost? What did we do that we've lost? They're asking the right kind of question. What is, they're looking to God. What did we do wrong that we as the people of God have lost this battle? Good question. Look at their response. Ah, let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Wrong answer, okay? Good question. Wrong answer. Verse 4, the people sent to Shiloh that they may bring from there the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Shiloh, if you remember the last few weeks, that's this spiritual center. That's where the tabernacle is. That's where Eli is. That's where Samuel is. That's where Hophni and Phinehas are. So they go to Shiloh, they get the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it back. Verse 4, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. Okay, so there's this battle. We don't know why they're fighting. There's this battle between the nation of Israel and the Philistines. They go out for the first battle, and 4,000 Israelite men die. Okay, so they just get, they get whooped. Okay, the Bible word is smitten. Okay, uh, they get destroyed in this battle. And they ask themselves a good question, an important question. Why has the Lord brought defeat to us today? Why has the Lord defeated us? Good question. They are the people of God, after all. These are the same people that could march around a walls, yell, and the walls come down and they win, right? So it's pretty logical for them to ask, hey, why did we lose here? Well, why was God not with us? What's their answer? Well, they should have said, oh, you know what? I bet it's all this rampant spiritual compromise we've been involved in the last 20 years. Maybe it's the fact that our priests are committing adultery with the people who are coming to worship. Maybe it's the fact that they're stealing from their offerings to fatten themselves. Maybe that's the problem. No, 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 no. They say, oh, you know what it is? We forgot the ark. Go get the ark. So they do. They go get the ark. Everyone is psyched. Everyone's pumped. It says as Hophni and Phinehas carry the ark in, the ground is shaking. They're cheering. They're applauding. The ark is here. God is with us. The earth shakes with their response. Now, all of this is kind of setting the stage for a moment we're going to see, not next week, probably the next week in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, where Israel will resist and reject God as their king, and they will ask for a human king. They'll ask for a guy named Saul to be their king. This is kind of leading up to that moment. This is setting the stage for the moments where they will reject God as their ruler and want a human ruler. And if you, if you remember 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel gets all upset about it, like, why are they rejecting God as king? Why, why don't they want us to rule and God says, listen to Samuel, he says, they're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as their king. They're not rejecting you as my mouthpiece. They don't want me to be their ruler. This is what's happening in chapter four. We're seeing the initial steps to what will result in a nation saying, we don't want God to rule us anymore. We don't want God to be our king anymore. God isn't their king in these verses. You know what God is? He's their good luck charm. Oh, why did we lose? I forgot my lucky rabbit's foot, right? Or I forgot, I, you know, played sports. I forgot to wear my lucky socks. Or I, I forgot that this little piece of me, I forgot to say this. And, and now as a result of it, we've lost it. They are treating the powerful manifest presence of the Lord like a rabbit's foot or a lucky penny. 
We lost. Oh, we didn't bring the ark. We, we forgot that lucky piece. They didn't consult God before the battle. They weren't interested in the compromise taking place in the tabernacle. They were just leaning on their own wisdom, their own tactics, their own ideas, trusting in the fact that they were the people of God, that God will just wholesale give them whatever they want, whatever they need, because God's their God while they're rampantly compromising on every front. God in this story is not their king. God is their means to their preferred end. Oh, go get the ark. Then we'll win. John Woodhouse said, religion is the attempt of human beings to harness God's power to their own advantage. I love that. That This is what's happening in this, in this text. They're trying to take the power of God, manipulate it, use it, bring the ark out, and then God will have to let us win. They want God to be a means to their end, more concerned about God serving their needs than they serving God's. They can just move the ark from place to place, and all of a sudden, God's just going to bless whatever they're doing. And this morning, we have to see compromise is always, at its root, a God problem. When we fail to see God as our rightful king, and we treat him in such a way where we expect him to serve us rather than we serve him, we will compromise. Let us sink in for a moment. That we would take the creator God, right? The one we just sang about, come and behold him, only holy God, right? Lord, I need you. That we'd take him and we would put him to work for us rather than we to serve him. There are so many times in my own life, and that sounds shocking to, to think about that truth, but there are so many times in my own life that I sought out God as a means to my own personal pursuits. God bless me here, God bless me there, God take care of me, God do, all, all about me. I have a friend of mine who was a chaplain for a minor league baseball team, and uh, he would, his responsibilities were basically week to week, he would go in and put on Bible studies for the players, and they'd, you know, have a mentor and a spiritual guide and counselor, and then on Sundays, if there was a home game on Sunday, he would put a chapel on for the players. There'd be a chapel in the home team dugout, and a chapel in the visitor team dugout. They never had chapel together, I guess they couldn't get over that hump, right? So they would have chapel separate. Um, and he said they would have these weekly Bible studies on like a Tuesday morning. He'd have one guy come or a couple of them come, maybe at the most two or three that would come to these weekly Bible studies as they'd kind of sit and, and talk about the word. But on Sunday, it was like revival. I mean, the dugouts were full. He said half of them didn't even speak English and they were there, right? They're listening, trying to get, and he asked the, the, one of the guys that came to the Bible studies, one of the one or two, so what is the deal with this? Like, why, why do we have nobody comes to the Bible studies, and then at chapels, we have this, you know, dugout full of people? He said, oh, because they see you on, on Sunday as their padre, right? They, they want you to pray and bless them and raise their batting average a little bit. They're, they're seeking safety and protection and results for themselves today. So on Sunday, they're going to come and ask you to take care of them and bless them. It's funny. But it's also sad because a lot of us do the very same thing. Some of us are still there. God, fix this. God, give me this. God, take care of this. Make my life awesome in every possible way. And this story, treating God like a good luck charm, results in misplaced confidence because God didn't respond the way they wanted him to. Verse 6, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what means this noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? Sometimes moms and dads, you hear the the noise in the playroom, and that's your response. What means this noise in the land of the camp of the Hebrews, right? What is this? Rightfully, just like parents sometimes, verse 7, they were afraid, right? But they said, God is coming to the camp. 
And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? They hear the roar of the people. Yes, God's here. God's going to take care of us. They get afraid. Verse 9, they get their pep talk. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And they fought, verse 10. And Israel lost. Israel was smitten, they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain. That's a fulfillment, obviously, of the promise that we saw last week in chapter 3, that Hophni and Phinehas would die, and they do the next chapter. It turns out that treating God like a lucky penny doesn't always turn out the way that we hope. Even worse something for us to be really careful about, compromise sometimes can result in an Ichabod. What do you mean? Well, there's this guy that, I don't have time to read it all, verse 17, there's this messenger that runs back from the battle, has to go tell everybody what took place, right? We got our rear ends kicked. Even with the ark, we lost. And guess what? Not only did we lose, verse 11, the ark of God was taken. You know that little good luck charm, that, that, that physical manifested presence of God? It's gone. Uh, it's no longer here, right? You ever have to report back at home that your you know, mom bought you a new ski jacket or snow coat and you couldn't find it after recess and you have that moment of fear of, yeah, they, I, I, I lost it, right? Well, this is a little bit bigger deal. Right? You know, you know the, the, the Ten Commandments? You, you know the, the gold cherubims? You know Moses's, st- you, you know that? Yeah, we, uh, we took it to the battle because we thought it might help us a little bit and uh, we, we lost and we lost that too. He goes back, verse 11, tells Eli, that not only were his two sons dead, Hophni and Phinehas, but the ark of God was taken. Verse 18, and it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell from off his seat backwards by the side of the gate, his neck brake, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. There's that word kavod, he was weighty. In other words, taking the, the fat from everyone's offering over the course of several decades made him a big dude, okay? And he fell and he died. Verse 22, and she said, sorry, verse number uh, 18, he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years. Imagine being Eli. You hear Hophni and Phinehas are gone. You hear the ark is taken. As soon as he hears it, drops back and dies. More bad news. Verse 19, his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, about to be delivered. She's pregnant when she hears her husband has died. And the, the grief of that moment about her husband being passed away, but also Verse 19, the ark of God was taken, causes her to go into labor. She goes into labor, has a baby, names that baby. Verse number 21, Ichabod, saying, the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Think about it, the glory is gone. The glory is departed. We treated God like our good luck charm. We treated God like our lucky socks or our lucky penny, making him do what we want him to do. And as a result, the presence of God is gone from Israel. The manifold presence of God is gone. That's basically God saying, I'm out. I'm out. Removing himself from Israel. Understand, if you consistently choose to compromise against the truth of what God has called us to do, you may end up with Ichabod. You may end up with the glory of God departing. What happens to a country? What happens to a culture? What happens to a church that consistently treats God like a, like a lucky penny, like a good luck charm? What happens is Ichabod. 
the glory leaves. The glory departs. Still the people of God, but the powerful presence of God is gone. Gone. Understand this. If we consistently compromise, if we consistently ignore God as our king and only seek him out to serve our purposes, do not expect the powerful presence of God to be at work in your life. If we continue to resist, we continue to reject, we continue to tell God to do what we want him to do rather than coming to him and asking what he would like us to do, don't expect him to work powerfully in your home. Don't expect him to work powerfully in your church. And I think that could be what's taking place in some of our lives this morning, that we're not experiencing the presence of God, the power of God, the glory of God in our lives because we're not approaching Jesus as our king. We're not approaching Jesus as our ruler and as our Lord but we are approaching him as someone who serves our purposes, that accomplishes our means and our ends. So this morning, let's thank God for his mercy and compassion and forgiveness that is available to us through Jesus by faith. But let's treat him as our king. We serve him. He doesn't serve us. At the heart of our compromise is a failure to see him as our ruler. Number two, second truth. Not only is God king and we serve him, secondly, God is greater. Our hope is in him. Our hope is in him. So the question coming into chapter 5, I told you we move quick, don't be afraid, right? Coming to chapter 5 is that the ark of God is gone. What happens to the ark, right? Well, to kind of pan, if you think of movies or TVs, the scene change, okay? We move over to the nation of, of the Philistines down uh, southern Israel, kind of even right now where the Gaza Strip is, where all the kind of news is, that's where the, the Philistines would have resided. We, we pan there. They're taking the ark of God back into their place. It's like a trophy, right? It's a representation of their victory. Verse 1, the Philistines, chapter 5, took the ark of God, brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And when the Philistines came to Ashdod, they took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, which is their god. It's a fish god, really unimpressive. Basically looks like a big man mermaid is what it looks like if you look at pictures of it. They took this ark of God, the, the manifold physical presence of God, and they put it before Dagon half putting it in like up on a shelf like a trophy half humiliation they, they thought their god was so big well, you you heard their chants right you heard their screams you heard that how they affirmed there's no way we're gonna lose the ark is here well look at it like look what their god is compared to our god right they put it before dagon verse three when they have asked out arose early on the morning behold i love this verse three dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the lord they took dagon propped him back up in his place again when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon was falling upon his face again before the ark of the Lord. And this time the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut upon the threshold. Only the stump, his little man-mermaid part, was left to him, okay? Therefore neither, verse 5, the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. So the Philistines are these surprising victors. I can't believe it. I thought we were going to lose. Somehow we won, right? They bring in the ark of God. They didn't expect to win, but it's somehow the God that they thought that was superior to their gods, we won. We beat them. So they take the ark. They place the ark, the presence of God. They take it and they place it in front of the fish god. The fish god, right? Out of all the creatures that we could have gotten, a fish god, right? This is a statement of humiliation. It's, it's, it's Old Testament trash talk, okay? It's taking the, the presence of the glory of the God of Israel and placing it in front of their God to worship it. 
What are they saying? They're saying our God is greater than their God. But our God shows us once again that he is greater than all other false gods. Can you imagine coming in that first morning? Oh, no, Dagon fell down. If your God has to be propped up, it's a lame God, okay? Oh, no, Dagon fell down. Prop him back up. Second night, they come back in. Oh, no, he fell down again. And his head got chopped off. And his hands are chopped off. We're thinking, oh, no, oh, no, no, the ark of God is gone. Who's going to be there to protect the ark? God can protect himself. Oh, no, what's going to happen to the ark? What's going to happen to the presence of God? We don't, we're not here to guard it, to protect it anymore. God is going to take care of that, okay? The world, a world we live in today still is trying to systematically humiliate God. That's not new. This has been happening for millennia, trying to humiliate God. Was it Friedrich Nietzsche that said God is dead? That turned out to be a lie because he is and God isn't. Today's world is trying to take our relationship with God and make it all, it, privatize it, right? That, that's for you, that's for you, but that's not for everybody, right? That's privatize it. To isolate his truth from social issues, to isolate his truth from, from, from cultural discussions. You know, I don't believe that. You try, the next time you're in a, some kind of conversation that's kind of prickly with someone, you, you try leading into that conversation by saying, well, the Bible says, and see what the response is. Or, well, you know, God says in the Bible that usually they're not like, oh, what does God say in the Bible, sir? We'd like to know, right? They're not overly interested in what God has to say in the Bible. They're not really interested in what the Word says. And it's easy as we look around to see all of that and see all that's going on and the attempts to humiliate God and His Word and for us to get really negative, really defeated, really pessimistic, and this morning, I want to tell you that the solution to our spiritual pessimism is not ignorance, sticking your head in the sand. It's not some illogical kind of optimism of, hey, you know, everything's going to be fine. Well, those, are, those aren't ever taught to us in Scripture. The solution to spiritual pessimism, to what's going on, is not burying our head in the sand. It's not illogical optimism. The solution is hope. It's hope. God doesn't call us to ignorance. God doesn't call us to negativity necessarily, to pessimism. He calls us to be hopeful because he is greater than those trying to humiliate him. He's greater. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. It doesn't matter how sinful the world can become. It doesn't matter if it feels like God's been placed on the shelf. It doesn't matter if it looks like the compromise of our culture and our world is winning. God is greater. But not only is God greater, he's actually doing something. He's up to something. God is greater and he is active. Oh no, what's going to happen to the ark? Well, the ark's taking care of itself. God's taking care of the ark. And not only is he greater than the God of Dagon, he is actively, he's going to take that which is humiliating and he's going to turn it into a tour of victory. He takes this humiliation and he begins to humiliate others. This Psalm 78 verses 60 and 61 gives us a different perspective of this same story. Psalm 78 verse 60, look at it. So that he, being God, forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. What am I saying? What is that verse saying? Because it sounded a lot in our story that Hophni and Phinehas lost the ark and that the children of Israel lost the ark. But Psalm 78 seems to say that God allowed it to take place and that God forsook the tabernacle and that God allowed his strength to be taken into enemy hands. God did this. Philistines think they took it. Israel thinks they lost it. God left. God did it. He's got it completely under control because he's greater. He's going to take this humiliation 
and he's going to turn into victory. Look at verse number six. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them, smote them with emeralds. Those are tumors. Even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. In other words, we got to get this thing out of here. Verse 8, they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them, said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let's take the ark of the God of Israel to Gath, another one of their cities. And they carried the ark about thither, and it was so that after they had carried it, the hand of the Lord was against that city with a great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great. And they had emrods in their secret parts. Doesn't take much imagination. We can get it, right? Verse 10. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. It came to pass that the ark of God came to Ekron. So it's in Ashdod. We, everyone's sick. They're getting tumors. There's, there's, we're going to see in a minute rats come in. There's like a plague that's going on. Get this thing out of here. They take it to Gath. Same things happen to Gath. People are sick. There's, there's, there's this misery. There's these plagues that are going forth. Let's get it to Ekron. Same thing happens in Ekron. They brought the ark of God of Israel, verse 10, to slay us. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it go again to his own place that it would not slay us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout each cities by the hand of God, which was heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emeralds and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the powerful presence of God, even in exile. Even when he's been removed from his tabernacle, God is displaying his glory and his power, his kavod, his weightiness, his power, even to this nation of the Philistines. This is a theme throughout the Bible, by the way. Think about the book of Exodus, how God takes humiliation and turns it into victory. Right, the children of Israel, 400 years in slavery in the Exodus, humiliated, embarrassed, lower than dirt. What does God say in Exodus chapter 14, verse 4? I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. He took a humiliating situation, a moment of humbling, and he reversed it into victory. Why? For his glory and for his power and for his name. Think about the story of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2. Humiliation, right? Jesus humbled himself, not only to put on human form, Philippians 2 says he humbled himself to become obedient even unto death. Nothing more humiliating for the God of all creation than to die upon a cross for the sins of humanity. Humiliation. Became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But we know the end of that story, that humiliation does not result in death. That humiliation results in victory. That that which was broken was put back together. That that which was dead has come back to life. And Philippians 2 goes on to say, and God has given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things down to the earth. He takes these humiliating situations where the world thinks that they have won, and he turns it into a moment of glory for himself. God is greater hope in him. This is what God does. He works through moments of his rejection and moments of those trying to humiliate him, and he brings about victory and glory. So we look in our world, man, they're making fun of Christians, they're mocking God, and they're humiliating the truths of Scripture. God will take these moments of humiliation, and he will bring glory to himself. I don't know how, I don't know when, but God is working right now. And he will be victorious, he will receive his glory, his kavod, his weight, because he is greater. So be hopeful, be hopeful. 
is greater. Without that kind of conviction that God's going to win, that God ultimately brings victory and glory, we will be tempted to compromise. We'll be tempted to go along with the flow of what everybody else is doing and go along with the flow of what our culture appears to be winning in. My hope this morning is that the holiness of God, the, the conviction that God is greater, the kingship of God will strengthen our spines, will give us a new resolve in our conviction that our hope is in him. And he's greater. He, he can take a moment where he's placed before a false god hundreds of miles away from his normal residence, and he can drop that god on his face, chop off his head, chop off his hands, and go on a victory tour from city to city to city so that thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were once humiliating and mocking him are saying, we got to get this god out of here because he's bigger than ours. He's greater than ours. God is greater hope in him. Thirdly, thirdly, God is holy, so we worship him with awe. Well, the tables have turned on the Philistines, haven't they? They went from pretty confident, we won, we whooped those Israelites, to somebody get this box out of here, right? Somebody take this ark. They've had the ark once we get to chapter six for about seven months, and now they want nothing to do with their trophy anymore, right? Return to sender, we want this out of here, get the ark of God away from us. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna send it back to Israel with a guilt offering, we see this in chapter six, they go to their priests and they ask, how, how should we send this back? Like, is there an Amazon return box somewhere nearby? They're gonna take this to my local Kohl's or Whole Foods to ship this back, right? How do I return this, right? How do I get this back to Israel? And they come up with this idea of, of putting together a guilt offering of some, some golden rats and tumors. I don't know how they would construct that, but basically symbolic of the destruction that the nation are the ark of God brought upon the nation of the Philistines. Let's, let's put together this little, this little sacrifice, this little offering, and let's send it back with that. Weird idea, but they do it. Little trinkets they send. Uh, verse four says, what shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to them? They said, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. These are these great cities of the nation of the Philistines. Make images of your tumors and images of your mice that mar the land and give glory unto the God of Israel. And maybe he will lighten his hand from off you and from off your gods. <clears throat> Understand this. If you need to pray for another God to lighten his hand off of the head of your God, you need to get a better God. Well, let's pray and send him an offering, and then maybe their God will be nice to our gods. Maybe, maybe he'll take it easy on us a little bit. Verse 6, wherefore then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he had wrought wrongfully amongst them? They did not let the people go, and they departed. In other words, get over your pride. We want to survive this, not like the nation of Egypt did. So, okay, well, how are we going to send it back with these mice and these tumors, trinkets, these golden, golden tumors? Verse 7 says, well, let's make a new cart. Take two milk kind, those are cows, okay, on which there hath come no yoke, and tie the kind of the cart. Now, these, when we talk about milk kind, these are mom cows, okay? Mom cows who have recently had baby cows. And uh, I don't know if you've been around mom cows and baby cows, but think they're not that all, I shouldn't say this the right way. Um, you don't want to separate moms and babies right? Got a mom of a new baby, that, pulling that baby out of those, that mom's arms is going to be relatively difficult, right? Same is true with cows, okay? You got a cow, a baby that needs to nurse, a baby that needs to be taken care of, and they tie these two new mom cows to this cart. They separate their babies. Just kind of imagine the picture of them mooing frantically in the background. I don't know if they moo or whatever they do. Like, they're, they're, they're trying to separate themselves from them, and they place the Ark of the Covenant on this cart by these new mom cows. What they're trying to do is make the situation as hard as possible, right? Basically, if these cows leave their babies 
and take the Ark of the Covenant to Israel, we'll know that this was of their God. If they act according to nature and turn around and go back to their babies, then we'll know this was all some weird, sick coincidence, and we just happened to get tumors and rats when the Ark showed up. So they're trying to build this kind of test for the Ark. So they get, they get it laid upon the Ark, the jewels of gold. Verse 10, they do this. Took two milk kind, tied them to the cart, shut up their calves at home, and they laid the ark of the Lord upon the cart, and the coffer with the mice of gold and the images of the tumors. And the cows took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh. In other words, they hightailed it to Israel. They went straight. They didn't turn around. They didn't look for their babies. They didn't try and figure out who was going to take care of them. They took off straight back to Israel. Went along the highway, verse 12, lowing as they went and turned not to the right hand or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them unto the border town of Beth Shemesh. These new mom cows beeline it, beeline it for the promised land. They make it to Israel, they make it to this little town called Beth Shemesh, and we see two responses. Verse, verse number 13, they at Beth Shemesh were, were reaping the wheat harvest, it was harvest time, they're out in the fields working. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark. The ark's coming back, right? And look what happens. They rejoice. They worship. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemite, and they stood there and there's this great stone. They claved the wood of the cart. They offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites then came. The priest came and took down the cart off the ark. And they all had a, a moment of worship and thanksgiving. They made sacrifices unto the Lord. They worshiped. The presence of God is back. They had feasts. That's what you'd expect, right? God's back. Let's go, right? But look at verse 19. Not everyone responded that way. Verse 19, he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote the people 50,000, three score and 10 men, and the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Evidently, verse 19, some worshiped the Lord with great celebration when the ark came into town, and other ones went Eh, what's the big deal? That looking into isn't just peeking into the ark. It's not just like, oh, they, they, they looked at something they shouldn't have looked at. You don't get 50,000 men to do that, okay? It was the general tone of disrespect. It was, you look at the language here, it's like an unholy disinterest in the presence of God coming back. Big deal, is what they said. And think about it. At harvest time, seeing these cows coming straight towards them, carrying behind it the Ark of the Covenant, worship and praise and adulation and a good percent of the population shrugging their shoulders and jesting and mocking and disrespecting. What is that? That is a casual disrespect of the holiness of God. Understand this, my friends, please. You can and you should, based upon the death of Jesus, come into the presence of God and approach God boldly. That does not mean we approach God casually. The same God that was not to be mocked in front of the fish God is also not to be mocked in Israel. The same God that brought destruction when he was mocked and ridiculed and approached casually in Ashdod, the same was true for the people of God. One of the clearest signs that we have compromised in our walk with God is a lack of awe, fear even, respect of who God is. Uh, my favorite author, this isn't surprising to anyone who's in our church, is C.S. Lewis. Um, 
and The Lion, Lush, of the Wardrobe, which is probably my favorite book outside of the Bible. I just love The Lion, Lush, of the Wardrobe. Um, read it with Graham. I was trying to get there with Reese, but I just love it. And there's a scene in the, in, in the story, if you're not familiar with it, there's this Jesus God figure, Aslan, which is this lion ruling over Narnia, and this is the kingdom that, that he rules over. There's the moment where the children see him for the first time. I don't know if you guys remember this or not. I put the quote in your outline. It says, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw Aslan. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children ever thought so, they were cured of that thought now. I love that. What is Narnia? The place where Aslan lives and rules, the kingdom of this lion. Understand this. Our God is good, incredibly good, and kind, and merciful. Our God also is terrible and fearful for us to be awe and respect of. Do we have that kind of understanding of God? That yes, he is so good, but he is also so other. The Bible is holy, right? He's so different. He's so separate from who we are. Are we still in awe of him? Do we have that sense of reverence, that sense of respect? One of the greatest concerns I have for my own spirituality is that I would be tempted to go through the motions of things. You guys ever been there? You feel like, you know, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do the good things. I'm just going to kind of go through the motions. But we approach the Creator casually as if He's just another thing on our to-do list to spend time with Him. Am I casual about the Creator of the universe who right now sits in heaven holding all things in creation in place? Does it hit home for us, like how big he is and how powerful he is and how fearful and awe-filled we should be as we approach him? Does that hit home or is it just kind of roll over our heads? Oh, God, yeah, God made everything, that's cool, and we just kind of shrug. And then, yeah, God's holy and God's perfect, but yeah, he's, he's, he's nice to me too, so we just kind of shrug. And we just kind of move on with a casual feeling towards God. When's the last time you opened the word and we're in awe of him? and fearful of, of, the, of the power that he possesses, of the holiness that he has. The fear in the Bible is not some kind of, you have a fear of God, it's not some kind of tremor as in like a, a beaten down dog when someone walks near it. It's an understanding of the power of someone. We see in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord and he, he falls to his face and he says, woe unto me, I'm a sinful man, right? It brings us an awareness of who we are. When's the last time we saw and we worshiped and we felt that sense of, awe and respect that God is not a topic to be mastered. He is a being that we worship. When we worship, is it, is it self-centered? Is it focused on us? Eh, well, they were a little off tune today. You know? uh, or they were, you know, they were, how, the volume wasn't quite what I would like. A little too loud for me, a little too quiet for me, a little too this for me. It wasn't, it wasn't exactly what I needed to really get in the worshipful space, you know? Am I consumed with how I feel or am I consumed with the God that I'm worshiping? The truth of who he is, his, his beauty, his majesty, his wonder, this, this amazing truth that this other God, this separate from me God, this transcendent God loves me and doesn't just love me, he loves me so much that he died for me. When's the last time that I just experienced the love and the graciousness and the power of God, and it not only drew me near to him, but it kind of stopped me in my tracks. I said, whoa, whoa, this is, this is different. He's good and terrible. 
again this morning, our compromise situation is far less about what news network we watch and how, what internet sites we pull up, and it's far more about our view of God. It is a failure and unwillingness to believe in who God is and the resistance that we ought to rightfully respond to him by giving him honor and giving him glory and giving him worship and giving him obedience. John Piper asked the question, what is sin? I love his response. He says, sin is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. He says that is sin, ultimately. It's far less about setting up these barriers around our house, not to let the bad guy in. It's far more about you looking at who God is and you reverence him and you fear him and you obey him and we honor him and we worship him, that he's holy and we're called to be in awe of who he is. So give him the weightiness that he deserves, the kavod, the weight, the glory that he deserves. Verse 20, and I'll be done in just a second. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord and God? Great question. Important question. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? We have a moment where we see the holiness and the power and the perfection of God. We have an awareness of our own insufficiency. How can I come into that? How can I stand before that God? Well, the New Testament obviously answers that for us, that we are able to approach boldly into the throne of God, not based on our own merit, but based on the merit and righteousness of Jesus. Through his sacrifice, we approach boldly into the throne of God. Again, not casually, but we stand before God with our petitions and our needs and our prayers and our desires, fearfully understanding his power and his control and his holiness and his sovereignty, but also calling him Father, Jesus referring to us as his friend. They see and they feel this conviction of this holy God, this separate God, this, this glorious glorful God. How, who can stand before him? They should say, we need to repent. We need to stop compromising and doing all this stuff. We need to get things right in the tabernacle, and we need, we need to make sure we're, we're, we're committing ourselves to, to obedience. Like we've been so obviously rejecting these past several chapters we've seen. Well, we can repent, but what do they do? They ask the right question, then they ask a bad one. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Second question, and to whom shall he go up from us? Instead of repenting, they say, hey, let's just move him along. Move him along. You know how many times we're faced with that same opportunity where God convicts us of something? We see his holiness, his otherness, his transcendence, his power, his holiness. We see our sinfulness. And I have a moment, and I know you guys have had it too, of am I going to fix this? Am I going to repent? Am I going to turn from what I'm doing? Or should I just watch a show real quick? Or should I just open up my phone? Or should I just move this along? Instead of repenting, move God along. Let's find a new town to ship him off to. Let's find a new place for this holiness of God. Let's not do that, church, okay? When God draws us to himself, when God reveals the sinfulness and brokenness that exists in our hearts, may we repent and turn to him in faith and trust because he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and patient 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, turn to him. Turn to him. Man, we, we turn on the news and we get so discouraged, and I do too. I'm guilty of it. Open up Facebook and I see people fighting and arguing about ridiculous things, and we're trying to figure out what's going on in our world. How do we fix this? How do we fix that? How do we win elections or lose elections? How do we, how do we do like, and all of it. We can get so worked up, so anxious, so concerned, so fear-filled. What are we going to do with all this compromise that's taking place around us? This morning, I want to ask, what are we doing with the compromise that's taking place within us? The moments where I don't see God as my king, I see myself as God's king. That I, I kind of pull out God when I need him. Uh, oh, we're sick, or oh, we need to do this, or oh, this is happening, and I need a promotion. Uh, let me get out my good luck New Testament, right? Let me get out my, my lucky charm here, and let me pray real quick so God can raise my batting average, or God can give me a bonus, or God can take care of me, and I use God to accomplish my purposes. Maybe we repent and turn to him as our king. Maybe for the moments we watch and we get so fear-filled and anxious, what God's going to do, we get pessimistic and this loser mentality, what's going on in our world, no one's ever going to come to know Christ anymore, and no churches are going to go forward, and no, no, my kids don't stand a chance. Maybe we can understand that God is greater, and we have someone we can have hope in, that the same God that we serve is the same God that puts fish gods in their bellies and chops their heads and hands off. That's our God. And may God forgive us for the moments that we treat him casually with disrespect. And we kind of shrug him off when he brings conviction to our hearts, when he points out some things that need to be addressed through the power of his word, through a faithful friend, through a, a sermon or a song, that something needs to be addressed in me. May we worship him with awe and respect and the glory that he deserves. And this morning, I love the answer to that question, who can stand before the Lord? The invitation to you is you can, but not on your own merit, not on your own goodness, not in our lives of compromise and selfishness. We, we stand before the Lord based on the righteousness and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. And when that conviction comes to you, can I encourage you, don't move him along. Don't move along. Turn to him in faith and trust. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed in just a moment.